This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg, and if you are inclined to play philosophical bingo, well, you can start filling out your cards now with phrases like, well, that depends. It's time to talk to Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein. He is a Chester Fritz Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the University of North Dakota. He also hosts Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life, which you can hear right here on Prairie Public. And he joins Main Street once a month for Philosophical Currents, where we take a philosophical view at one of the biggest news stories. Jack, thanks for joining us today. I'm happy to be here, but I have to start by saying that depends on what you have in store for me. <laughs> All right, that one. We marked one. <laughs> but my next one is, well, what you're really asking is, there are two things going on here. <laughs> I, I, I feel personally attacked, I have to say. Actually, I feel seen. That's a much more oh, optimistic there. way of uh, yeah. describing it. <laughs> yes, that mindset. Well, Jack, we want uh, to have you on today to talk about what's known as equal under the law. And why we are talking about this is because of what's happening between the FBI and what's going on at Mar-a-Lago, Trump's estate in Florida, and what some people are calling an unreasonable search and seizure. Some people are calling a raid. How are you looking at this as someone who studies and teaches the philosophy of law? Well, first of all, I don't think any of those terms are accurate. What they're doing is executing a search warrant. And the search warrant was the product of, frankly, two years of discussion and negotiation. This didn't get a lot of attention because the word raid is so attractive for headlines. But the very short version of the story is when a president moves out, they... um, archive everything. They archive everything on a computer, every note, every piece of paper, every scrap. There's a really wonderful depiction of this in the last episode of the series, The West Wing. The National Archivist was on site and saw a bunch of people putting boxes on Marine One and wondered what those boxes were. Contacted the Trump Organization, didn't get a response looked at the numbered boxes of the recorded archives, found a bunch were missing, contacted the Trump organization. They said they didn't have anything. Over a period of about a year and a half, there was a negotiation back and forth, including uh, formal requests, things like that. The Trump folks gave some boxes back, boxes they said they originally didn't have. They said they gave everything back, but it turns out that they hadn't. So so after a long time and after two years of this back and forth, once the FBI realized that these were sensitive documents, they subpoenaed the documents and they went in quietly, in fact, without wearing FBI clothes, without notifying the media or everything being very, very sensitive, and went in to Mar-a-Lago to retrieve those documents and with a very, very specific search warrant saying they could search the public areas, they could search the offices, but they couldn't search the guests' room, the guest rooms and things like that. Mm. And that's what's going on. So the idea that they came out of nowhere and just did this raid is, is, is simply inaccurate. Now, why is that relevant to our conversation? It's relevant because every person, especially a person of power, prestige, uh, a person who has the authority of the former president of the United States gets to be part of a process, gets to be part of a, uh, 
a series of steps that are all very, very specifically outlined. It wasn't the FBI who decided to do this alone. They had to get uh, uh, they had to provide evidence to a federal judge, and they had to list on uh, they had to list on their sheet all of the evidence they had to justify the search warrant. And this independent federal judge, who was a Trump imp- appointee, by the way, had to approve the execution of the search warrant. Hmm. That's where we are now. So what I'd want to ask anyone before we had a serious conversation about this is a hypothetical, and it's as follows. If Donald Trump were selling nuclear secrets to Saudi Arabia, and I'm not saying he is, but if he were, would he or do you think he should be caught and punished? That's the question. The question isn't did he do it? The question is if he did it and they think he did it, should they investigate because should he be punished? Now, the answer, you know, you may think it's a conspiracy. You may think he didn't do it. You may think it's all made up. But hypothetically, if the FBI actually thinks he did it, then it seems to me following proper procedures, he's being treated equally under the law. Is that what they're accusing him of doing is selling nuclear secrets? They are not actually accusing him of anything other than... Uh, among, I guess there are a, a few different things he's accusing of, but what they're accusing him of specifically is violation of the Presidential Records Act. All Despite, right, let's talk about yeah. that because these are his papers. They happened under his administration. Why isn't a president entitled to keep things that happened during his term? Because Richard Nixon. <laughs> That's the short answer. After the Richard Nixon stuff, after Watergate, Congress made a law called the Presidential Records Act. And what it basically says is all presidential papers are property of the American people and must be stored in the National Archive. And this means if there is a draft of a note that the president is writing, right? Let's say there he's, you know, dear Ashley, thank you so much for interviewing me. And he crumbles it up and he throws it in the garbage. That gets taken out of the garbage and archived. Every single thing the, the president writes gets kept as part of the Presidential Records Act and is, and is the property of the United States. It may be nonsense. It may be meaningless, but you know, they're thousand page biographies on presidents and people Mm -hmm. look at these original things. And so Donald Trump is actually not being charged with mishandling classified documents. There's no mention of classified documents in the search warrant. He is being searched for violations of the Presidential Records Act, which means any person, again, president or otherwise, who holds documents that are uh, that are the property of the United States and belong in the National Archive must return those documents. Mm -hmm. And so the other thing that you have to distinguish between and it's particularly hard with Donald Trump is you want to distinguish between the office of the president of the United States and the person who holds the presidency. Donald Trump is a person. Right. He is good at some things, bad at other things. He's a human being. He goes to sleep. He goes to the bathroom. You know, he's a human being. But when he is the president, he acts in the name of the United States and he holds the office of the president of the United States. And the reason why the Presidential Records Act has impact is that it holds 
as property the consequences of the person who holds the office of the president of the United States, not Donald Trump per se. So any of these documents do not belong to Donald Trump, you know, Mr. Donald Trump or whatever. It belongs to the archive because it was the product of the office of the president of the United States. So what would happen to me? What would happen to Julian Assange if we had copies of those papers? A similar process, although probably not as slow, <laughs> right? Um, uh, they have given him significant deferential treatment because it took him two years to execute the warrant. Whereas if it were you, it would probably happen in about three days, right? If Ashley, uh, if Ashley Thornburg, as a representative of Prairie Public, had classified documents with, you know, allegedly nuclear secrets, uh, they would act pretty quickly. In part because I think they would presume that you would broadcast it, and they would, they mm. would and that's what happened with Julian Assange. But Julian Assange wasn't violating the Presidential Records Act. Julian Assange was violating. He had classified documents that he was not legally entitled to. He was not a legal authority or anything like that. And then he illegally distributed it. And so that's where the Espionage Act comes in. If Donald Trump, and again, this is a hypothetical, if Donald Trump is in fact leaking, selling, intending to sell Items that are uh, a risk to the security of the United States, whether they're classified or not, that's a violation of the Espionage Act. So I think, you know, in theory, and of course, all of this is theory, right? But in theory, all of the same things would happen to you, would happen to Julian Assange, would happen to Donald Trump, but it happens slower to Donald Trump because he is the former president, because he's wealthy, because he has lots of lawyers, and because they want to be extra careful and deferential to someone who held the office of the president of the United States. If these papers belong to the office of the president and therefore the American people, does that mean there is access to these papers? If I go to the U.S. archives, can I just you know, fill out a form and, and go get them? Well, here's here's philosophical bingo, because there's two different possible answers to that question. <laughs> so the first is eventually, yes. That's why we have presidential libraries, right? There's the Clinton Library, there's the Obama Library, there's the the, the 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 Bush Library. Those libraries contain all of the papers, all of these papers by the president. And so you can go visit the library and some of those documents are on display and some of those documents you have to request to receive. And some of those documents like, you know, in a reference library, you can only read there. The caveat is there are going to be documents that are redacted or prevented because they reveal security secrets of the United States or other things that shouldn't be open to the public. And what the National uh, Archivist does in coordination with the military and other people is decide which of these documents people can see. Now, here's the second part of that question. We have this thing called the Freedom of Information Act. And the Freedom of Information Act says that when something is redacted or classified, you have the right to apply to the government to see those documents. The request goes to first a committee and then I, I think ultimately uh, a judge, although I don't know the whole process in detail. And they look at the material and they say, is it fair that this is classified? Is it fair that this is redacted? In which case, no, you don't get access. But in most of the cases, you can get access. So what there is is a system, and you'll recognize this phrase, of checks and balances. Right? And so 
the people who classify these documents get the first say, but then there's an appeals process for scholars, for reporters, for any citizen who wishes to access, and then there's some sort of judicial oversight to help negotiate that. Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein, a philosopher, on this month's Philosophical Currents, we're talking about equal under the law. But, Jack, there are all sorts of cases where somebody does have, uh, for different reasons, the ability to break the law. I, I'm, I'm thinking an undercover cop could break the law to stay in character in order to bust someone else. Is there something like how how does equal under the law apply to something like qualified immunity or diplomatic immunity? So let's take one step back before I answer that question, which is to understand that the way that our legal system works, we're not necessarily focused on truth or guilt and innocent per se. What we're interested in is following a proper procedure. We have an adversarial system of procedural justice. Now, that's a technical phrase. But what I mean by that is it's adversarial because we think that the proper result of uh, a judicial proceeding only happens when you have two opposing sides who are arguing vociferously for one another or against one another. This is why there are different uh, standards of proof. So in a criminal case, the prosecution has to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt or beyond a reasonable doubt that someone is guilty. And it's up to the prosecution to prove that because it's an adversarial system. In a civil case, there has to be proof beyond a preponderance of an evidence. That means 51%. In order to execute a search warrant, it's a little vague, but basically what it means is it likely happened. And this may be 30% or 40%, although there's some states in which uh, in order to execute a, a search warrant, it has to be a preponderance of evidence. And the goal is not to get necessarily the accurate result. The goal is to have a fair procedure in which everyone is treated equally. That's why if someone's if a defendant's rights are violated, they can throw out the case because the goal is not, again, to necessarily punish the guilty and uh, free the innocent. It's to have a procedure that is fair to all people. With that said, there are going to be certain circumstances in which we think people get, we'll call it the benefit of the doubt. So you have a police officer who has qualified immunity. And what that basically means is we take the police officer's word over another witness. So if police officer Smith uh, says that, um, you know, uh, Sally Brown punched someone in the face and Sally Brown said, no, I didn't. And the police officer said, I saw you. And she said, I didn't. We trust the police officer more. But what does it mean to treat someone equally under the law in that circumstance. We allow people to film the arrest. We allow people to submit video evidence. And this is why the internet is full of people videoing police officers and showing that quite often police officers do not accurately reflect what's going on. And those that's why it's not illegal, at least in most places, to, to, to film the police. Because if you're going to give someone qualified immunity, you also have to have that checks and balances to show to allow evidence to say when uh, they're lying. And then if they're lying, the process of punishment uh, is either you know within the department or ultimately, as we saw with George Floyd, 
uh, criminal prosecution. Now, the system doesn't work perfectly. The system is disrupted by race and sex and gender and money and the situation and circumstance. We live in an imperfect place. But the idea is theory that is then modified to, to, to sort of respond to the reality of the situation. So all these things, qualified immunity, diplomatic immunity, they're designed to give certain people the benefit of the doubt with the appropriate checks and balances. And the theory, again, is that when all of this works, it means that people, the result, the end result are people, is that people are being treated equally under the law. What about this idea if they have been given the benefit of the doubt? Is there sort of a reciprocal on the other side? If they are found then to be breaking a law, are they subject to more consequences than someone else? I'm thinking of the officer who's in trouble for falsifying the search warrant uh, in the case of Breonna Taylor. Given the benefit of the doubt and therefore held in greater responsibility, should he be subject to more punishment. You would think, and this is where the system uh, is not perfect, you would think that a person who uh, broke the public trust would be held more accountable, but there is the code of silence. There's people protecting each other. There's there's money and power. There's police unions. I mean, it's very interesting that people are in favor of police unions, but against uh, teachers unions, right, when they're supposed to do exactly the same thing. We have all these mechanisms that try to equalize, right? So what does a union say? A union says the boss, you know, the management has all of the power. And so what we want as an employee is to unify together to equalize the power between the employee and the employer. And that's the same theory in a police union, in a, in a, in a trucker's union, in a teacher's union, in a student union, any kind of union is the same thing. And so in theory, what you want to do is create these balance. And then in theory, someone who violates the public trust ought to be punished more. I mean, I certainly personally believe that a that a police officer who intentionally does something wrong, I mean, there's mistakes and mistakes is different than negligence in the law. And there's all those sorts of sub questions. But if someone intentionally exploits their position, if I exploit my position as a professor and, you know, sell grades or engage in favoritism, I think I should be punished more than a student who... I don't know, plagiarizes or tries to manipulate the system because I violated the public trust. When there is an imbalance of power, when there isn't a strong union culture of the United States, when there isn't strong defense attorneys, when when public defenders have to do 500 cases and spend five minutes in preparation to defend the, the, the poorest members of society, then this notion of equality under the law breaks down. And part of what we try to do is remedy that through legislation, through uh, appeals process. This is the, the the heart of our legal system is a whole other uh, is an after the fact uh, repair, which is a whole other conversation, but it's not working well. And so part of what you indicate by your political party, whether you're Republican or Democrat or independent or green or something like that, is what procedure you think, what what legislation you think will best repair the system. Is access to marriage an example of an equal under the law? 
it's a super great question. And it's, it's, it's something that I think we can all use as an example of, 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 of uh, a process we've seen in our lifetime. Right. So it depends. <laughs> you make me feel really guilty now. It depends on how you define marriage. If you define marriage as the legal union of a single of, of an individual man and an individual woman uh, recognized by the state, then gay marriage does not fit that uh, depiction. Now, as a footnote, I will say marriage between one man and one woman is one of the least. Uh, what's the word? Uh, there is there is less one man one woman marriage in history than almost any other marriage in history. Polygamy, polyamory. There's a history in China of of, of women marrying ghosts. I mean, it's all super complicated, and so this sort of the traditional quote unquote marriage isn't a traditional marriage at all. But if you're going to define marriage as one man one woman, then something like gay marriage would be a special right. You're letting someone do something that is different. However, if what you define marriage as, as two consenting adults legally recognized as a monogamous relationship uh, who receive the benefits, the rights and privileges of that relationship, then treating um, people who are gay or, or, or something else uh, is equal under the law. And what we've seen in the history of marriage in the United States, of course, is that Originally, the idea of marriage wasn't just one man, one woman. It was one person of a specific, one man of a specific race marrying another, a, a woman of that same race. And then eventually we decided, well, no, you can marry someone of a different race and that's okay. And once you're married, you can have, uh, um, sex for fun you can use birth control and you have certain privacy rights and and you're not uh you can't be forced to testify against your spouse for example out of protection for marriage and so that's another instance in where where the gay marriage needs to be recognized for equality under the law because if i spend you know i'm i'm married to a woman and we've been married now uh since 2003 i guess so ni uh, 19 years and i can't be forced to testify against her but if i were married to a man and uh, I were also married for 19 years and that marriage wasn't recognized, I could be forced to testify against my husband. And that doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem fair that a homosexual couple doesn't have the same right to privacy, right? And this is obviously ripped from the headlines, the right to privacy uh, as, as a heterosexual couple. And so in my reading of what marriage is throughout history, throughout the United States, throughout the expansion of liberty that, that is the United States ideal procedure, giving all consenting adults the right to marry is equality under the law. And let me add, by the way, all those silly arguments. Well, if we let gay people marry, we let, you know, we could let people marry animals and all of that sort of stuff. And the answer to that is no, because they're not consenting adults. They're not human adults. They're not rational. Horses can't consent in the same way. So what we have tried to do through the American history, whether it's through responses to slavery and education being, you know, integrated as opposed to separate but equal, we have been negotiating as new information about humanity gets put on the table or as new ethical standards develop, we are negotiating what it means to be equal under the law. And for the most part, and until recently, 
the idea has been each one of these challenges of equality under the law has made more people equal and more people free and more people recognized as full human beings and full citizens rather than less. And because the progression of the United States is to increase individual liberty, anytime you get a position that takes someone's freedom away, it becomes suspicious. And that is, of course, calling back to our previous conversation last month, that's one of the accusations of, of the Dobbs decision, that it's taking women's rights away and making them less equal and less free. But of course, that's a controversial uh, discussion right now that's on the table. You talked about this negotiating what it means to be equal under the law. And we've used words like equalize and equality and equal as if they are entirely the same word. But I, I'm curious, um, as we look at things like equality, and in the news in North Dakota recently has been uh, this conversation on the Pledge of Allegiance, taking it away and then reinstating it. And, of course, what happens in that discussion is the use of the word under God, which assumes a Christian God. Is it equality under the law then that someone else should be able to talk about Allah or, or a different God? The Pledge of Allegiance is such a wonderful rabbit hole to go into down into because it's very little of what you think it is. The Ple Pledge of Allegiance was uh, first created in, I think, 1892 as part of uh, the, the, uh, an exposition, the World's Fair. And it was a marketing device that was sent out to magazines and all of this sort of thing to, to get people to start think go to the to the exposition and go to the, go to the World's Fair and and to start thinking in honor of what was it the 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 400th anniversary of Christopher Columbus uh, dis discovering America quote unquote it became standardized in the 1940s but then in the in the 1950s there was the red scare and the red scare was this idea that largely false, that the American government and the American people were full of communists and we had to reveal the communists. What they did was they took the Pledge of Allegiance and they added the phrase one nation under God, because the theory was that since communists were godless and since communists did not believe in God, they would never say the word under the God, under God. Mm -hmm. And so you would discover communists by, you know, seeing the kids in school or at the ball game or whatever. They'd say one nation. And then when everyone else said under God, they would, you know, stop talking and then you could point them out, which is silly because if you're a secret communist agent, you can lie and say the word God. It's not, you know, it's not he who shall not be named. It's not Voldemort. Right. So, <laughs> the, 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 you know, that's. That's where under God comes from. It's 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 a it was a political rhetorical device in order to get a lot of attention for a bunch of people who were creating a scare in order to win office. Now, with that said, there have been Supreme Court cases, including a famous one in which Jehovah's Witnesses requested their kid be excluded from saying the Pledge of Allegiance and one nation under God. Uh, and the Supreme Court ruled yes. That, that just as, and I'll sort of combine time here, just as parents can opt students out of sex education, just as parents can opt students out of other things, they can opt students out of saying the Pledge of Allegiance. Now, the argument one would make in favor of, of, of requiring this is, 
that under God is an Abrahamic uh, notion, right? It has a, it has a, it anthropomorphizes God. There's God above God and below God and that it's not a metaphor. It's literal and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, secularists, uh, whether they're communists or capitalists or none of the above, get to say or not say what they want. So again, here we see this procedure. We have this rule, we'll call it, you know, all kids have to say the Pledge of Allegiance in school. And then we have this appeals procedure in which parents or whomever say, no, I don't want to do it. And that gets reviewed by a board and the board then um, makes a decision. And then the parent can appeal that and they can appeal to the legislature. They can appeal to the, the, the city council as they did in Fargo, or they can appeal to eventually the Supreme court as the Jehovah's witness did. And that is again, in theory, what it means to be equal under the law, what it means to be equal under the law is to have equal access to the process of challenging the law if you think it has been applied unfairly or if you think uh, the law should not um, uh, bind you to something that is against your personal interest or personal belief or, or the necessity out of life. And Donald Trump has absolutely the right to challenge the, 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 the subpoena, the search warrant. He has absolutely the right to file with the court to get the papers back. He has the absolute right to put all of his lawyers, you know, in court to, quote, undo the FBI uh, process. And so we have a very clear example of this on a minor scale, whereas very often what happens when you execute a search warrant is you're grabbing a bunch of stuff and you put it in a box and you give a receipt for everything you take. You have to give a paper receipt so that the, the person who you've taken it from and their lawyers have it. Donald Trump discovered that the FBI took his passports um, and they weren't supposed to. So he made a big deal of it and he said, they took my passports and give me my passports back. And they sent a note and the FBI said, yeah, you're right. Uh, we didn't mean to take your passport. Sorry. And we gave them back two days later. So uh, or, you know, a couple days later. So it wasn't that they thought he was a flight risk, as some people said, and they weren't prosecuting. They made a mistake. And because Donald Trump is equal under the law, he got to appeal that mistake. And the FBI said, oh, yeah, you're right. We didn't mean to take your passports. Here they are. And it became a non-issue because that happens all the time in executing search warrants. People take things by mistake that are outside the, the purview of the search warrant. And then that stuff is given given back in theory and not part of the criminal procedure. If something follows, those passports would not be admissible evidence in the court proceeding because it wasn't part of the scope of the search warrant. Hmm. Jack, it gets very complicated to talk about Trump in this instance because one, he is a person, but two, he is also representing the United States as the office of the president, which is, of course, an entity. There is a concept that helps advance discussion within the framework of the U.S. legal system known as a legal fiction. What is that and how does it apply here? So a legal fiction is an agreement that, you know, the law, the Supreme Court, however you want to put it, uh, makes to categorize something as something it isn't. So the, the, the most famous example of this is that a corporation is a person, right? We all know that a corporation is not a person. 
And we all know that a corporation can't get up and walk around. It doesn't eat food and all that kind of stuff. But suppose you want to sue Verizon. Uh, let's say Verizon treated you badly or, or, or charged you the wrong money. Who do you sue? Well, if, you, if the corporation wasn't a person, and I have a whole Y Radio episode about this, by the way. It's in the archives. It's called Our Corporation's People. And if, you know, who would you sue? Do you sue the customer service operator? Do you sue the person who enters the data into the computer? Do you sue the person who puts the stamp on the envelope as if there were such things? Do you sue the CEO? What you do is you sue Verizon the corporation and they have lawyers and they have assets and 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 because we can call a corporation a person we can sue verizon in and of itself rather than the individuals most of whom have nothing to do with the issue the office of the president of the united states is a legal fiction in the sense that the office of the president of the united states is an oval room mm-hmm. and a private study right you can't sue an office of the united states what the word office actually means in this context uh, and and goes back hundreds of years it actually means role or 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 sort of persona so uh, <laughs> my best friend gail says that my favorite word is a latin word qua and i'm going to use it here it means in the role of so you are talking to me as jack qua philosopher Kim, my wife, engages with me as Jack Qua husband. My daughter, Adina, uh, engages with me as Jack Qua father. If I confuse those things, I can get myself in a lot of trouble. If if Kim has to deal with Jack Qua philosopher, then I you know lecture at her and, and she gets really annoyed because I'm not treating her like a human being. And if I treat, you know, uh you the same way that I, uh, that I, as Jack Qua husband, then, you know, my wife is going to get really mad about the nature of our relationship. Right? Also, so would so, I. <laughs> yes, I would, you know, thank you for that, 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 that note of support. <laughs> um, but anyhow, moving past that very quickly, Donald Trump Qua president in the office of the president is a public figure. So, for example, we have no right to know Donald Trump's private medical records. But we do think that the medical records of the president of the United States is of public interest because we might not vote for someone who is dying of cancer or who has a heroin addiction or something like that. And so what we have to negotiate and what most what most presidents have done is signed documents saying my in this Part of my medical information is public and part of the public record. And this part of uh, my medical records are private and it's no one's business. And we can refer to the offices of, 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 of the president of the United States to allow for things like executive privilege. Right. So as a president of the United States, certain things I say to people when I'm engaging in my role as president is protected and can't be forced out of my lawyer or forced out of the other person, just like the things that I say to my wife can't be forced out of me. However, there are limits to executive privilege and there are limits to other things. And that, again, is equality under the law. So you need these legal fictions to dis- to, to, to help create a vehicle to talk about corporate bodies or abstract bodies so that we can protect the people who engage with them. If I, if I need to sue the U.S. government 
I'm not suing every worker of the U.S. government. I'm suing the legal fiction of the corporate body, and I don't mean they're a corporation in that sense, but of the, of the corporate body of the U.S. government. And you just need that stuff in order for people to be able to sue and interact and distinguish between the people and the institutions. In these limits of privilege, how does that extend to something like diplomatic immunity? There is a case being talked about right now where a diplomat from South Sudan has been accused of raping a neighbor and may be able to avoid persecution because of diplomatic immunity, even though what could raping a neighbor have anything to do with protecting the diplomacy? This is such an awful case. I mean, it's it's the, the circumstance under the case is, is horrible. The guy pushed his way into a woman's um, house and assaulted her. And, and we should say allegedly. He's not allegedly, been found right, guilty. Right. Sure. But the point enough. is that he might yes, not right. be even come to trial right. if he so, can claim diplomatic immunity. So people of my age are haunted by the depiction of diplomatic immunity in Lethal Weapon 2, the the Mel Gibson movie, where the the representatives of South Africa uh, get to do all sorts of crimes and kill police officers and steal Krugerrands and all this sort of stuff and then claim diplomatic immunity. And the only solution, because it's a fictional cop movie, is for Mel Gibson to shoot him at the end of the movie. right? But um, there is a reality to that situation, which is... The idea behind diplomatic immunity is that like an like uh, an embassy, that person represents a foreign nation as a legal fiction. So the Russian embassy in the United States in Washington, D.C. is considered Russian soil and is not subject to the rules and regulations of the United States. A diplomat walking down the street from South Sudan is is considered to be walking in essence on South Sudanese soil wherever they go. I have done some initial looking at the the Supreme Court uh, rulings on on a diplomatic community, and there aren't a lot. and And I don't, I can't be an ex, I, I can't talk on on an expert level about this. But interestingly enough, in July in the United Kingdom, the the UK Supreme Court ruled that diplomatic immunity does not apply to criminal behavior. That it is that that you can't claim diplomatic immunity for, and I'm making this up, murder, uh, shoplifting, things like that. And it looks like, from my initial search, that the United Nations um, uh, International Court has ruled that diplomatic immunity can't protect people from sex trafficking and slavery and, and enslaving people and things like that. So what's happening is that there's a negotiation. And so as a philosopher, if I were going to make up the rules off of the top of my head, what I would say would be diplomatic immunity protects people in their official acts as diplomats and protects them from being uh, criminally charged as a way to pressure them or punish them for being a diplomat. And that applies to the same thing as the office of the president of the United States, right? Which is, it should be legal to sue Donald Trump for not paying contracts or for violating some sort of agreement, or if he were to, you know, assault someone, sexually assault someone as he, you know, 
claimed to do on that famous tape uh, before the election. Um, you can sue him for that, but you can't sue him for an executive order and you can't sue him for signing legislation. Why? Because as the office of the president of the United States, he is protected by this, this again, legal fiction. And so I think the best way to describe the diplomatic immunity stuff is, is analogous to that. Lots of teachers have what's called teachers in, teaching insurance, that if you get sued by a parent, the, teaching insur the teacher's insurance protects you, but it wouldn't protect you from beating up someone in your apartment. And so... Again, in order to make people equal under the law, you have to distinguish between them acting <laughs> qua, them acting in the role of their profession, or them acting as, a, as, as an individual person. That's what um, uh, limited liability companies do and things like that. All There is a huge infrastructure in the law to distinguish between people as private individuals and people working in the role of or as representative of institutions. And the question of Mar-a-Lago ultimately is, were they executing a search warrant on the president of the United States, of which he is not, or were they executing a search warrant on the private property and the private personhood of Donald J. Trump? And that's certainly the position that the FBI holds. Three minutes left here, but in, in talking about limited liability and not suing, you know, the customer service representative at Verizon, but sue, being able to sue Verizon. What is the role of, of us then as people? Because it's very easy to just say, well, I can't really get in trouble. It, it sort of diffuses the idea of personal responsibility that I might be doing something that's legal, but not ethical. You know, this is actually a super... <laughs> deep and complex problem. And, and this is, I'm sure that's not why I you... only gave you three minutes. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, 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 um, this is not where you thought it was going to go, but, but the most famous and controversial example of this is actually the novel uncle Tom's cabin, because what uncle Tom was a, uh, house slave who was a Christian and he felt that it was his job to do the best he could do in whatever role he ended up on on Earth. And so even though being enslaved was immoral and even though his life was full of pain, he still tried to do the best he could as a servant for his family. Mm -hmm. Now, the novel is really complicated, but of course people look back at that and some people say this is a really powerful and empathetic depiction of a person trying to live a good life and be a virtuous person. And other people say what Uncle Tom was, was a tremendous sellout who, who, who sold his humanity uh, in the name of false virtues. And that's why the phrase Uncle Tom is an insult. Uh, and if you if you call an African-American an Uncle Tom, it's it's a horrible, horrible, horrible thing to say. And, and and would be really, really offensive. So now let's extend that to, to a Verizon employee. It's perfectly legitimate to say, I want to be the best customer service operative I, I am. I want to do my job well. I want to earn my money. I want to be kind to customers. I want to try to solve problems. That, that is 
distinct from Verizon being an ethical or an unethical company. And then you get these really complicated instances like what happens if your boss says, as a customer service operator, if someone has a has a, a, a let's say they, they want to challenge a bill, you are supposed to a- accidentally disconnect them, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, can you do that morally? Can you engage in a regulation that is designed to go against your job or that is, is, is furthering an unjust or unfair business practice? Some of those things are personal decisions. Some of those things are you have to decide how far you're willing to go for your job and how, and how much you're willing to, to, to blur the lines. And some of those things are, are instances of principle. And as, and as, as people all of whom who work and all of whom who live in families and all of whom who engage one another, this fundamental question of what kind of person am I going to be and in what principles am I going to abide by is a core human question and a core human negotiation that we are all engaged in at all moments. And what equality under the law says is that we are all free to engage in this negotiation under our own terms and that there is a process, a procedure and an institution and protections to help us do that while being safe and, uh, entitled to the rights and having the responsibilities of the citizen of the United States. Jack Russell Weinstein, qua guest for Philosophical (laughs) Currents. Thanks for your time today. Thank you, Ashley.